So good morning. A couple weeks ago, uh, we kicked off a new series um, we're calling Roadblocks Moving Forward. So the guiding metaphor of the series is based on the idea that if uh, we are actively trying to follow Jesus or to use some popular church language, uh, we might talk about our faith journey or our walk with God. Um, I love how uh, Eugene Peterson said it. He, he called discipleship a long obedience in the same direction. All these phrases, whatever we might use, kind of imply movement, right? And the idea of this series is that in the process of following Jesus, trying to progress through that long journey, uh, we're bound to experience roadblocks. Things that come up in our way, sometimes circumstances outside of our own control, uh, and other times roadblocks are sort of just a natural consequence from our own decisions. Either way, the roadblock, as we're talking about it in this series, is, is a thing that keeps us from progressing in our journey of following Jesus. So throughout the rest of the series, uh, this is just part two today, throughout the series you'll hear from the other members of the teaching team, uh, similar to how we did the Fruitful series last summer. So you'll hear from Megan and Josh, Amanda and Aaron. Um, I've got a little sneak peek at what they're all working on. I think it's going to be really great. Stay tuned for that. Uh, In the coming weeks we're going to be covering fear, comparison, hurry, shame, insecurity, to name a few fun topics. So whether you're here uh, with us today or in person, in person or joining online, listening to the podcast while you do dishes or whatever it is, thanks for being here. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you. So today, we're going to talk about labels. Labels and love and how you have to choose one or the other. We're also going to talk about the origins of a certain four-letter word you might not hear a whole lot in church. We're going to talk about what to do if you see a burning bush. But first, we're going to start at the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew 5, amidst some of the most famous things Jesus ever said, uh, there's a maybe slightly less talked about passage. Maybe most of you might, it might kind of ring a bell. This is a very famous portion of the Bible. Um, but this is the same chapter as things like Beatitudes and Salt and Light and Turn the Other Cheek. And this one might get a little less attention. Uh, probably because like so many things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount especially, uh, it's kind of a difficult teaching. It's not something that um, looks great on a bumper sticker. So this is uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Good starting point. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, we'll talk about that word in a minute, Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is, in, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. We'll talk about that word in a minute, too. So this term, uh, Raka, is one of the few lines in the New Testament that remains untranslated from the Aramaic that Jesus was speaking. So part of the reason it seems that this word stays untranslated um, it could just be that the gospel writers didn't find like, the perfect analog for it in Greek that they were writing. Um, but probably another reason is, is the way it sounds. So when you say raka, if you say it correctly, I'm a little bit like scared to do it on a microphone, but it's supposed to kind of sound like you're breaking up something in your sinuses or like raka, like that. It's kind of got that. If you look it up on YouTube, if you really commit to the pronunciation, it's got a little bit more of that. So you can see how if you made that sound and directed it at someone, it would probably make that person feel not great, right? And the definition of the word on top of that means essentially worthless, or it can also mean empty, 
or empty-headed. So imagine making that kind of gross sound and directing it at someone and essentially calling them worthless in the process. So that's what Jesus is talking about with that word there. Then Jesus goes on to say, Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Our equivalents today for you fool, you know, I don't, if someone like, if, if you get cut off in traffic, I don't imagine you go, you fool, right? But there's like, uh, it's a little old English, but, uh, you know, stupid, idiot, dumb. And then like kind of as we talk about people in our lives, you know, this person just can't make good decisions. They can't keep a job. They can't stay in relationships. They just can't get their act together. They're one of those people. One of those people who believe differently, vote differently, dress differently, enjoy different things than me. You fool. So Raka, you fool. What we're calling these things today are labels. So why do we put labels on other people? We all came with names that our parents gave us, right? Some of us go by a nickname, but for the most part, we kind of come with a prepackaged name. Why do we feel like we need to go around labeling others? I think ultimately it's a self-preservation thing. We label others to protect ourselves. We put labels on others to help make sense of the complexities of living with other people. We label others to keep them at a distance, to help us feel like we can understand them, which helps us kind of know our place, right? The classic put others down to make yourself feel better situation. Or at least put others in a box so that we can understand and kind of know... If I label you, I can kind of know what to do with you, keep you in your spot. Jesus, though, all throughout the Gospels, in story after story, Jesus chose to see people, not labels. He always acted in clear, intentional defiance of our notions of labels. He really only saw the labels to the extent that he purposely chose to act against the labels he knew others were putting on their fellow humans. So there are great examples in almost every chapter of the Gospels of Jesus ignoring or outright going against the expected labels placed on other people. It's all over the place. Sometimes we can miss it, uh, being 2,000 years removed from some of the cultural things that were going on when, the, when uh, Jesus was alive. But it's not an exaggeration to say that almost everything Jesus did was in some way going against an expected label. A few examples, Jesus makes the hated Samaritan, and he makes the, uh, the Samaritan the hero in one of his most famous parables. He touches people literally labeled untouchable, like lepers and the bleeding woman and even dead bodies. He rewards the faith of Roman centurions and tax collectors and prostitutes, all despised people, people groups among his followers. In, in, in the Gospels, it's kind of just one label-breaking story after another. Jesus feels so strongly about this way of seeing and loving people that he seems to reserve his strongest language of judgment for words of warning against labeling and mistreating others. So as he does here in this passage that we're looking at in Matthew today, as it says, as we read a minute ago, anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The fire of hell. Sounds a little scary, right? You all want to take like a brief, like five to seven minute field trip to hell? Does that sound? I can see like all the elders take out their phones and start drafting the email. Like this guy can't get back up here again. This is, we got to put a stop in this. So it may be surprising to know that the word um, 
The word hell is not really in the Bible. There are four, four different words in the entire big old Bible, four different words that might get translated as hell in many translations, though a lot of translations like the English Standard are starting to go back and leave that original word in there. So we'll just kind of quit, uh, hit these quickly. So anytime you see hell used in the Old Testament, that word is Sheol, uh, essentially meaning the land of the dead or the grave, not so much any sort of torment or judgment, just the grave where the dead go. So a famous use of this word uh, is when the psalmist says, even if I make my bed in hell, or some translations say depths, or some say Sheol, which is the actual word, even if I make my bed there, you are with me. In the New Testament, uh, the word hell could be the Greek words Hades or Tartarus. Tartar sauce? I always got scared. I was going to say tartar sauce. Uh, So you can pretty easily learn about Hades um, if you watch the Disney movie. No. Um, Again, Hades isn't so much a place for bad people. It's just the underworld where dead people go. Most most scholars think that um, the name Hades originates from a Greek phrase about the unseen one or the unseen place, because when we die, we go to the unseen place. And then Tartarus was a place in Greek thought. Uh, I'm, I was homeschooled, so I didn't really get a good uh, like Greek mythology. I, I feel like I just tiptoed into that homeschool thing and didn't really touch on it. I should, that's another talk. Um, I don't really know that much about Greek mythology. Some of you probably know much more about this. But essentially, it's this place where titans, these godlike figures, go to be judged and condemned. And that word is only used twice in the Bible, in two epistles, and in both cases it speaks of like angels being judged. It's this very abstract, esoteric stuff. Um, but most commonly in the New Testament, this is kind of where I want to kind of land the plan and make it practical today. The word translated hell is Gehenna, which is the word Jesus uses here in this passage that we've been looking at today. So Gehenna was and is an actual place. You can actually go there if you visit Israel today. The pictures on Google Images, it actually looks very green and even beautiful now. You can go through a nice walk through the Valley of Hell. You can go through a drive. It's green. It's got trees. But that was not typically or historically the case. So in the Old Testament, you'll see this place called the Valley of Hinnom. Because Gehenna, as it's called in the New Testament, is just like the Greek transliteration of that same word. It's kind of like tomato, tomato, but it's the same place, two different languages. It's a giant valley outside the city walls of Jerusalem, and it used to be filled with trash and dead bodies, and fires were just always burning and never went out. And it came to represent this place of judgment in the Jewish mind. It's not really hard to understand why this specific geographical place grew to be thought of as a cursed Um, place of judgment, because in Jeremiah 7, we learn that um, Israel has gone so far from what God wants for them, they've actually started to worship the false god, Molech. And believe it or not, like they've actually sacrificed children to this false god. So just about the most unthinkably dark, evil things took place in this valley of Gehenna. And so eventually, it came to represent something more than just the actual geographical location of a dump outside the city. So there's some really interesting reading from Jewish rabbis, especially, that would be peers uh, to Jesus uh, in and around that time, detailing kind of how they imagined all that worked, and that all has implications for us, Um, and it's interesting. Um, But for today, we're just going to kind of stop there 
and um, try to come back to the, the practical implications of why, why this little field trip here. So almost every time Jesus evokes this kind of language of judgment and fire, darkness, hell sort of language, almost every time, the context is maybe not what you would expect. The context is not about belief. It's not about a belief system or saying a certain prayer or going to church. Time and time again, when Jesus uses this specific language, it's really coming down to how we treat others. So if you're a little skeptical, Ben sounds that a little, that sounds a little wishy-washy, sounds like maybe an overstatement. I'm just going to quickly fly through some examples here. Um, and you can write these down and fact check me later if you'd like, I'd encourage it. So in Matthew 25, there's a, a famous passage about the sheep and the goats. So Jesus speaks of a judgment where everyone is separated into two groups. To one, to one group, he says, come into my kingdom, well done. And the other group, he says, uh, he sends away to, quote, eternal judgment. So I don't know if anyone remembers what the entire decision was based on in this story. Anyone? This is the least of these story. To one group, he says, look, you, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. So you come into my kingdom. To the other, he says the opposite. They did not care for the least among them, and so they were sent away. No mentions of beliefs or church attendance. There's another story Jesus tells a rich man and a poor beggar named Lazarus. Interestingly, in this story, Jesus uses the word Hades, not Gehenna as he does in Matthew. He tells of a rich man who lived in luxury while a poor beggar laid covered in sores right outside of his gate. Both the men eventually die, happens to all of us. The rich man is in torment. The poor beggar is now with Abraham, which is like a Jewish conception of kind of the, what happens to the righteous after they die. In this story, the only deciding factor that's mentioned is that Lazarus was a poor beggar and the rich man didn't care about him. So this is really just clearly a parable about how the rich man treated the poor, the sick, suffering beggar, literally on his doorstep. So are we getting a little uncomfortable yet? Getting a little... I'm not done. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, the same chapter we read from a moment ago, uh, Jesus famously says that if your eyes cause you to lust you should just gouge them out. And this must have been like one of his greatest hits um, because he, he's quoted saying it twice in Matthew and also in Mark. Better to gouge your eyes out than have your body thrown into Gehenna. He's saying don't objectify other humans. Don't turn daughters and sons of God into objects that are only there to, to, to please you. He also said to cut your arm off if that causes you to sin. Better to cut your arm off, do a little do-it-yourself surgery, then suffer in Gehenna. There are more examples. Um, there's the, the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. Um, you can feel free to look into all these on your own time. Today, um, this is the point I'm trying to make with, with this little field trip. Jesus' harshest warnings about judgment have little to do with us believing the right things, or, or being good girls and boys and, and getting gold stars in some morality contest. The context for this specific language that he uses is almost always based on how we treat others. And specifically, in this passage in Matthew that we're looking at today, these labels that we stick on other people. So when we come to these passages with a kind of 
preconceived misunderstanding of the language that, of hell that Jesus is using. We can kind of easily write it off as church people uh, because we can easily write off at least the seriousness of, of what Jesus is saying. But I don't think these verses are, are often about any sort of dualistic, all-or-nothing afterlife. I think it's often about much, much more about how we live here and now. And to some extent, maybe some of the consequences of a life that's lived going against the values of Jesus' kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount, where this comes from, is, is painting for us this vivid picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And Jesus is saying that, among other things, this labeling of others, this name-calling, this dehumanizing, that's the stuff of another kingdom. That's the stuff of Gehenna. So let's just make sure that we're getting kind of clear, get it uh, down to our day-to-day as people in a local church in 2023. Uh, or if you're here today but wouldn't identify as part of this church or any church, this is just stuff that will help you in your relationships and just being a human being. So I've got uh, three, it's not, exhaust, not exhaust, exhaustive, um, but three examples of types of labels to try and spot and avoid. So the first label I want to talk about is just kind of a summary of these labels Jesus, is, Jesus uses, which I'll call dehumanizing labels. Raka and you fool, and their kind of more modern equivalents are dehumanizing labels. Lusting after someone is dehumanizing them, looking down on someone based solely on their ethnicity, like everyone did to Samaritans in Jesus' day, or looking down on someone as less than human based off their economic status or their gender or any label that takes away the dignity of another person, any label that goes against the truth that this person is made in the image of God. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, live in my kingdom. This way of seeing and relating to others has to go, these dehumanizing labels. The second type of label I'll use as, use as an example are always never labels. They never say anything nice about others. They're always difficult. They're never grateful. They're always the troublemaker. So I don't really like to give universal advice about marriage or parenting or anything um, because I don't think there's very much one-size-fits-all advice. But if you want a free piece of advice, this is no hourly rate for this. You can just take this with you. If you want a better like marriage, better relationship with your kids or your parents, this is a free one. Eliminate all of the always, never language from your relationship. He never says thank you. She never does the things I ask her to. He will always be selfish. She will always be resentful. He always does this. She never does that. When you live with someone for years, it's really tempting to start using those always, never labels. Just resist. Don't do it. Uh, and while this is especially true in our households with the people that we spend the most time with, it's so easy to fall into that trap. It's also true in our local church. So as we spend years with each other in this community, it's incredibly easy to fall into this kind of labeling. Like some of you are really difficult. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for the laughter. <laughs> I was not going to start calling it yet. It was a joke, kind of. Imagine the people that have lived with me for like three decades now. When you live with someone for years, it's just so easy to fall into this trap. And, and, and this local community that essentially functions like a big family, right, here at church, the next time you want to label someone in your life with an always or never label, 
Just do your best to catch yourself. Even if it's close to true, right? That they have a strong tendency to always or never be a certain way. Labeling won't help. So as Jesus calls us to see the person, not the label. And often, ironically, someone's best chance of growing into better pers- into a better person, growing beyond their tendency to always be this or never be this, often their best chance of growing into that better person is for someone to love them and believe in them and see them as a person and walk with them. So let's stop labeling people with always or never labels. Another type of label is if this, then that labels. So some things are just true. So for example, this church has baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, right? Ages are just, it's a fact, it's the truth. Where we get into trouble is when we put on the if this, then that label beyond that. So they're a boomer, so this is automatically true of them. He's a millennial, she's Gen Z, so I already know this about them. This also goes to labels we put on ourselves, right? We all have these different layers we self-identify with. Political views, theological views, personality types. And this is one of my favorite things about the local church. Where else do we gather with people of different generations, sometimes radically different theological and political ideas, We've got this whole wide range of human personalities here. And we all gather together, and even sometimes, as we're about to do in a little bit, we eat from the same shared table. It's a beautiful thing about a local church. But unfortunately, some of us will come to the Sunday experience and never really experience the depths of community that's possible. Because if you keep everyone at a distance who doesn't fit nicely in line with the labels that you want to associate with, you're going to miss out on so much. So many of my closest relationships are people who have labels, if I wanted to use that, that could have prevented us from developing a, a great friendship. This kind of leads to the main point I want us to walk away with from this section. Labels and love are incompatible. Labels and love are incompatible. It's one or the other. To use the language of this series, labels are a roadblock to love. Labels are a roadblock to intimacy, to community, to knowing and being known. You can't love someone while you are busy labeling them. As we said earlier, Jesus saw people, not labels, and he he calls us to do the same. Another layer to this is I think it's really important to understand the why behind it. This is not a checklist item that we do out of some sacrificial duty to conjure up some love because Jesus told us to. This is for our own good as much as for the good of others. The dropping of, labor, of labels is how you experience real community. To know and be known, to love and be loved, you have to drop the labels that we so easily want to put on others. We ultimately have to get comfortable with the discomfort of living with complex human beings. People who are this, but they're also that who don't fit nice, neat labels. People like me, people like you, people like the person sitting next to you. Complex, multi-layered human beings. The invitation to the kingdom of God is, is always open to us, I believe that. But Jesus is telling us the labels that we put on others are one of these things that we can't take with us if we want to enter the kingdom. For those of us who are here trying to follow Jesus, trying to live out 
the thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. As we try to live that out, we have to examine how our labeling of others is, is keeping us from loving and from experiencing intimate biblical community. So to recap the list uh, from a minute ago, there are dehumanizing labels we put on others. There are always never labels, and there are if this, then that labels. I want to pivot one more time because there's another type of label that we just kind of have to talk about. So as pervasive and problematic as the labels we put on other, uh, others are, there's an equally bigger problem. We haven't talked about that. And, and that's the labels we put on ourselves. So if this axiom is true that labels and love are incompatible, then it stands to reason as we add labels to ourselves, we are hindering our own ability to love and be loved by others and by God. The untrue labels we put on ourselves act as roadblocks, keeping us from fully experiencing God's love and presence and direction. And the labels we put on ourselves so often get in the way of what God wants for us. These lies we believe about ourselves that get in the way of the truth that God wants to get through to us. If you picture love flowing between two people or between us and God like a river, then a label is a, is a dam that blocks that flow. So to be clear, I believe God's love for us is constant and never-changing and non-circumstantial, truly unconditional. But our ability to actually receive God's love is often circumstantial and conditional. So there are as many unique labels we could put on ourselves as there are people here, right? We're going to all have our own baggage, our own stories, our own custom-made labels for ourselves. Uh, but just to paint with a broad brush, broad brush and help us get the idea here, um, I've narrowed it down to just two labels that I think encapsulate a lot. So they're the label unable and the label unworthy. Unable relates to things God may be calling us to, and the label unworthy goes deeper to how we view ourselves to be at the core. So let's talk about unable. The Bible's full of people who felt unable. Abraham felt unable. Moses felt unable. Person after person Jesus interacted with and called to great things felt unable. So the question is not whether or not we will feel able to do the things God is call calling us to. The question is whether or not we have faith enough to trust that God's power will be made perfect in our weakness, as Paul says. So maybe God has been calling you to something. Maybe it's been going on for a while, a burning bush in the corner of your eye trying to get your attention. You just keep ignoring it because of the labels that you've put on yourself. God you've, God, you've got the wrong person. I'm not the one to do that. I could never. I'm not a leader. I'm not brave like that. I'm not educated enough. I'm not one of those people who do things like that. I've got this baggage. I've got this insecurity. I've got too much on my plate. I'd like to, but I can't imagine what everyone in my life would say. I think God says, I get it, and that's kind of the point. God says, I see what you're saying, I see your shortcomings, and, and precisely because of that, you're perfect for the job. This label that we put on ourselves of unable, it, that doesn't scare God away. In fact, our inability to do it on our own is the whole point. Our responsibility is not to do the impossible on our own. That cliche about God not giving you more than you can handle 
It's not in the Bible. I think it's actually pretty clearly untrue. Life is constantly giving us more than we can handle on our own. So this inability to do it on our own is an invitation to deeper relationship with God. God will be with us through it. Our only responsibility is to have faith enough to say, I feel unable to do this, but I'm trusting you, God, that you are able to do what I cannot do alone. Sometimes God does call us to big, scary things. And other times we just feel unable like, to just live up to our own values. I found myself a lot lately, just these few past weeks for sure, just disappointed in my own ability to live up to the values that I claim to be most important to me, right? I have peace and love and patience tattooed on my arm as a reminder of my values that I've, the kind of man I want to be, the kind of dad, the kind of husband, the kind of friend. And yet I'm embarrassed at how little peace and patience and kindness I've been feeling and putting into the world. I have a clear idea of my values, um, and yet I'm constantly finding myself unable to live up to my own ideals. So sometimes it's something big. And sometimes it's just trying to follow Jesus and be our better selves in the day-to-day of life. In either case, it's, it's easy to label, label ourselves as unable. Other times, we kind of go a next level deeper and label ourselves as unworthy. Unworthiness is getting to the core of who we are. It's more of an identity statement than an ability statement. The label unworthy is when you come and hear a message and some nice songs about how much God loves you, and you just can't, can't receive it, can't believe it. Maybe you even believe in the abstract, the idea of a loving God, but it's, it's not applying to you. Whoever wrote that worship song doesn't know me, doesn't know my story, doesn't know how poorly I can act. What I did last night, the way I talked to my family on the way to church this morning, doesn't know my hypocrisy, my issues. As we label ourselves with this unworthiness, the heart hears the message of God's love and it rings true, but the mind intercepts it and says, nah, that's too good to be true. You're not worthy of that. To that, of course, God would say, yeah, I get why you'd feel that, but again, that's the point. That's what grace is. Grace literally means gift. No one's earned this by good behavior or worthiness. Wouldn't be grace, wouldn't be love. None of us did anything to earn this existence in the first place, this life we have. It's a gift. It's grace. When we look at Jesus, he was constantly doing these scandalous things, acting in defiance of all ideas of worthiness, like his interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. A woman, that's someone unworthy to be talked to and treated as a peer in that culture. A Samaritan, Unworthy of just basic human respect. This was like a despised and looked down upon group. A Samaritan woman, that's a double whammy. And then a Samaritan woman with apparently loose morals who had been married five times and now lived with a man she was not married to. All even much more scandalous in that time and place than now. This woman was unworthy by every cultural standard of the moment. And yet Jesus chose not only to see her, see her humanity and treat her with respect, but he actually chooses to be one of the first people to which he reveals himself to be the Christ. And he chooses her to spread this good news to her village. So Jesus says, yeah, I see the labels you're putting on yourself and others are putting on you maybe. And it is precisely because of these things that I'm deeming you worthy. If you've, had a, if you've been in a place where you've had a hunch that this whole God of love thing has some truth to it, 
or you've been coming to church forever and believing these things in your head without allowing them to get to a deeper place in your heart. If you've been keeping God's love at a distance because of your own feelings of unworthiness, I just invite you to let that guard down even just for a little bit. Maybe just for the rest of this service as an experiment. See what happens. Open yourself up to the idea that God labels you a son, a daughter, that God's infinite love is there waiting, like the patient father in the prodigal son story looking down the road. No regard for worthiness or unworthiness. You started talking, I started by talking about this series we're going to enter into for the next little bit, this imagery of roadblocks keeping us from better things, from the people God made us to be, the good things that God wants for us. And so my hope for today is that we take some, take some steps to become more free from labels, from the labels we put on others that dehumanize our brothers and sisters and destroy relationships and chances at intimacy. And I hope today maybe we, whatever untrue limiting labels we put on ourselves, I hope today you can start to see them for the lies that they are. I hope you'll find the bravery to acknowledge the burning bush message God has for you that you've been ignoring. Or if you've just been unwilling to, to let God's love in, I hope today is the day that that dam breaks. I hope and pray that this has been helpful. I hope and pray that overcoming the roadblocks of the labels we put on ourselves and the labels we put on others will free us to love and be loved in community and to fully experience the love of God like never before. Um, to wrap things up today, I've, I've written three brief prayers. I really find for myself writing prayers and reading pre-written prayers kind of to be what resonates most with me, so I'm going to share that with you. I'm going to put them in full on the screen, so you can feel free to take a picture of them and save them for label, save them for later. I won't, uh, I won't judge you or consider it sacrilegious or disrespectful if you want to take a picture of the screen. Um, another option is in the Bible app today, there are three little images of all the prayers uh, that you can either screenshot or actually there's a little tab on there in the Bible app to download these if you want to save them to your photos for later. Um, and of course, if you, if you would prefer to just simply close your eyes and just let these wash over you, um, that's perfectly acceptable too. There's no right or wrong way here. All right, so in closing, we're going to have three prayers. The first prayer is a prayer to help us stop labeling others. God, help me see others the way you see them. Help me to stop labeling my brothers and sisters. I want to live in community with others, to know and be known, to love and be loved. Forgive me for how I've labeled others in the past. Help me to see as you see and to love as you love. Amen. The next is a prayer for when we feel unable. God, I know there are things you are calling me to that I'm scared to do. I feel unable to do them. Sometimes it's like you've picked the wrong person for the job. Help me accept that you have chosen me to do big things, to do the work of bringing your kingdom to earth. I don't know how you'll do it, but I'm trusting your power will be made perfect in my weakness. Amen. Finally, a prayer for when we feel unworthy. God, I so often feel unworthy, unworthy of your love, unworthy even of good things in my life. 
Help me to see myself as you see me. Help me to accept that I'm accepted as I am. Not needing to do anything other than accept your love. Today I'm taking a step of faith and letting down the walls that have kept your love at bay. Though I often feel unworthy, I'm done letting that feeling of unworthiness keep me from being close to you. I believe you love me. Help my unbelief. Amen. The band can come to the stage. This first song we're going to do is a song we've been doing here for quite a while. It's a song that's actually kind of getting close to retirement, I think, as we learn new music, because we've done this one so many times. But I still like it, and I think many of you do too. And I chose it today because I, I felt the lyrics may come to life in a new way in light of these last 30 minutes. The song's called Sons and Daughters, and it gets at what I want us to leave with today. That when we are tempted to put labels on others, that we would see them instead as a brother or sister, as a fellow son or daughter of God. And when we are tempted to put limiting, untrue labels on ourselves, we could remember and see that we are not these labels, that we are sons and daughters of God. Also, in a moment, we're going to take communion together. And I'd love for us to just keep these words from this morning in our minds, that we could see each person that we are here with today as a brother, as a sister, that we would come to the table and see past all labels of age and backstory and personality and views on any number of things. I pray that we can have a shared time together to experience a moment of unity as one body coming together to share a metaphorical meal at the table. Since our brains love to label things, it's kind of what our brains are best at. If you find your brain keeps on insisting on labeling, then just let this be your label instead. For others and for ourselves, a beloved son of God, a beloved daughter of God. May those be the only labels that we continue to use going forward.